Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. Uh, Surprise! (laughs) For those of you who didn't know, I'm filling in for Luke this morning. He had a lot going on this week, and so he asked me to step in and finish the series that we talked about construction and reconstruction and deconstruction and all those things. And so um, I'm grateful to be speaking with you guys. And somebody always asks me, are you nervous standing up there? And I'm like, I'm just looking at all my friends out there. So how bad could it be, right? So thanks for having me. All right. 2,000 years ago, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look in the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, at one at the head and the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. Let me read that phrase, and I'm going to interrupt the story here. We're going to pick this up later. But this is, this is one of the most recorded and talked about stories of deconstruction and then potentially reconstruction that we know about. Mary Magdalene, part of the disciples, not the 12th, but part of a greater crowd of disciples, followed Jesus for close to three-ish years, um, basically his entire ministry. And as you can imagine, watches him die on a cross, Spends all day Saturday wondering what was, what was she to make of the last three years and what she believed. And on Sunday morning, or the first day of the week to the Jewish people, she headed out to the tomb to do one last thing for her, her friend at that point, who she thought was the Messiah, but she was concerned that he was not. And so her phrase there, the way she answered the angels, or sorry, the way she, uh, she answers the angels, that she didn't know were angels, sitting in the tomb when they asked her, you know, why are you weeping? What's the problem? And she says, they took my master, and I don't know where they put him. To me, that's the quintessential description of a deconstruction moment. I was doing this. I thought this was true. I was following this, and now I don't know if it's true anymore. I was following this truth. I was following this master, Jesus, and now I don't know who he is. I don't know if he exists. I don't know if it's really true at this point. So, um, I'm going to have Luke run the slides for me just because he's more talented at doing the slide thing than I am. Go to the next slide, please. Um, this is the cycle we have up here of what Luke talked about last week. It's a cycle we go through, and I'm, I actually renamed it, so forgive me, Luke and congregation. I renamed it the sanctification cycle. Um, and what I wanted to point out is that this is not just one thing that happens to you during your life. This is not something that happens to some people. You will go through this at some point in your life, and you already have, most likely, depending on where you're at in your life and how old you are. So the cycle is such. Construction. You were born in this world. You absorb values. You absorb behaviors from those around you, many of which you don't even think about, but you absorb them. The cycle really starts with what we call deconstruction and reconstruction. At some point, if I can use 
a crass cultural reference, you realize that Santa doesn't exist. What? But he's been, you know, and so forth and so on. And at that point, you then begin to deconstruct. Well, I thought it was, and this and so forth. And you have to go through a time of reconstruction. I have to build my reality and my behaviors around what I now believe to be true in a new sense, right? So Santa, Santa being kind of a, a silly example, but this is also true of the way we, go, way, way we walk through our faith. One of the things Luke mentioned last week that I, I was going to say, uh, and we, we chatted about it this week, and he's like, that's actually true, is he says many people get stuck in deconstruction and they never exit, which is actually untrue. They don't get stuck in deconstruction. Everybody will go through reconstruction. The question is, what will you reconstruct based on? So he gave an example of Josh Harris, who basically left the faith. Well, he reconstructed, but he based his sources and his truth on something that led him in that direction. You see what I'm saying? So we're all forced to build our reality based on what we see and what we understand as the source of truth in this world. Um, so that's kind of the cycle. I, I don't know if you see in the parentheses there, I call it unlearning and relearning. Even as kids, we unlearn things and we relearn them. We thought we knew something, now we have to relearn it. We have to re- get reset in what we understand to be true. Um, so what is reconstruction or what does this cycle actually mean? Ultimately, it is, it's the search for what is true, you can even use a capital T there, against that which we found to be false. We are looking for a description of reality that is ultimately true. We thought it was something, and then we came across an event, a behavior, an experience, an argument that dismantled that. So now we're on the search for truth again, and we're walking in no man's land, and we're on the hunt for this, the truth. Now, it's important to know something about humankind as we go through these cycles and as we talk about what are we going to do with reconstruction? How does that work? As humans, studies have shown, and you may, you may disagree with me, but it's pretty true if you're thinking about it carefully, we fear new and unknown. It, it, I mean, you may think you're brave and you may say, ah, I'm, I'm too cool. You are going to fear the new and the unknown. That's how we work. Something about the way we're constructed, the, the ruts we have, the traditional things, the things we know and, and have come to accept and, and are comfortable with provide us with a level of the ability to walk through this world safely. But when those things are shown to be untrue, it discombobulates us and we feel fear. So when you go into a deconstruction cycle and a reconstruction, or we'll call it the sanctification cycle, you will feel, you will feel fear. Fear that the things you, that you thought you knew are gone now, and you're, there'll be a lot of panic and emotion that'll course through you in regards to this. But don't worry, because everybody else around you is feeling the same way. You're not the only one. We have to go through this cycle in order to, to gain and to move forward in maturity in a way that we need to. So we're trying to discover what is the ultimate source of truth. Um, but we will encounter fear of what the unknown is. So next slide, please. The big question for us as we, as we exit or we... We are encountering a cycle of deconstruction and reconstruction. Is that regardless of my fears, am I willing to follow the truth wherever it leads? Am I willing to follow that? We can often say, no, I'm too afraid. So I'd rather just believe this thing that I kind of know to be a lie, but it makes me feel comfortable. And you you might say, well, I'd never do that. But people do it all the time. We do it all the time. In fact, probably in some part of all of our lives right now, we're doing something like that. We have to come to own our own fears and say, okay, 
do I really want the truth? And I think at the core of who we are, and we're all sitting in a congregation where um, we're learning and growing, we want to know the truth. We want to know what's actually true. The panic comes, well, what if what I know is actually true separates me from what I'm comfortable with or what I've known so far? And that's where the fear pops in. The next question about that is, if so, am I committed to the truth? Who do I trust for that truth? Where do I source that truth from? As I mentioned with Josh Harris, he found a source for truth. It led him away from Jesus. But he didn't, he didn't not reconstruct. He did, but he had reconstructed based on a foundation of knowledge or truth that he chose or he accepted, maybe without even thinking it through necessarily. And that led him away from Christ or away from his faith that he had grown up with. So the question is, if we are deconstructing, if what we thought was true is now no longer true, what do we do now? Where do we go? How do we know what we can trust? Do I go to textbooks? Is it science? Is it a politician? Is it age-old wisdom from the ancients? What, what do I do? How do I know? Um, and so let's consider, go to the next slide, Luke. Um, one of my favorite sports, figure skating. Kidding, it's actually not. But it's a beautiful sport, and quite honestly, aside from my issues with it, the, the amount of talent it takes to do that thing is pretty breathtaking, actually, if you think about it. One of the things that always blew me away about figure skating when I caught it every now and then is they do this spin thing, and they go fast. Now, as a kid, I used to like to spin to make myself sick because kids do things, but you get older, and then you, you, you go from being dizzy to actually like nauseous, and so you stop doing it. But one of the big questions as you watch that is, how do they whip around like that? It's, I'd say they, they say it's sometimes between 25 and 50 times. They're spinning so fast. And they come out of it, and they just continue to skate. Now, the rest of us, if you've ever played like a, a relay game and you did that with a bat, you come out of it and you're drunk as all could be. You know, you're stumbling around and you can't see anything. So how are they doing that? The question is, how do they come out of there not disoriented and discombobulated? Because that spinning is kind of what you feel when you're deconstructing. You're whipping around the world as you thought. Your anchor points are like, they're spinning around you. How do you stop? How do you gain control, if you will, of your own nausea and disorientation? Well, they use something called spotting. Some of you may have heard this or whatnot. They do something that you don't even see, but they, they're trained to do it so well, is that when they spin around, their head is looking one direction, and as they spin around, their head spins faster and grabs the point again. So their vision is actually locking into something and is, and is actually focusing less on the, the environment as it goes around them, but they're, they're, they've grabbed a point that they've anchored onto, and as they spin, it keeps them from getting disoriented and, and dizzy. Nice metaphor, Dave. What does it mean? Well, that's what we have to find when we're deconstructing. We have to find, we have to find our spot and we have to hold to it. So what is the truth that we're going to hold on to? And where are we going to go? Are you ready? Deep answer here. The Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. The end. I'm just kidding. No, but it's, it is Jesus. And I'm going to unpack that because if you're deconstructing right now, and depending on the level of deconstruction you're actually experiencing, you might say, great. I don't know if I believe in Jesus, so thanks for the answer. That's not helpful. That's like circular argument of some sort. But trust me here. We're going to go through this a little bit. You'll see why I think Jesus deserves, even if we're not sure about Jesus, he actually deserves our first take on a, on a source of truth, and I'll show you why. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Now, I could spend an entire sermon series on the historicity of Jesus. Jesus is not a myth. 
He did not, he is not something like that, that, that's, that the apostles made up. All historians agree that he was a historical figure and all historians agree that three days after he died, his tomb was empty. Those are arguments about what happened, but that fact alone should drive you to go, there's something there that I have to explore. I can't dismiss that offhand. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of all that because there's books that have been written about it. Luke, Jake, everyone can recommend things to read if, that's what, if, if you need to start there. But let me tell you, I have not found any exploration that I've done into whether I can trust the gospels or the historicity of Jesus that has left me wanting with questions. Sometimes I'll see a new argument, and based on what I've known, what I've already done research on, I'm really tempted to be like, that's all you got? That's your best argument? So my, my point is not to dismiss any doubts that anyone is experiencing, but there are great, great reasons to know that Jesus was a historical character. He lived and died. The gospels are, tr- are relative, are, true representations of what Jesus said and did, and that three days after he was nailed to a cross, his tomb was empty. So we have to wrestle with that, because that means something either, we have to answer that question, and if we can't answer it except by saying he was raised from the dead, then it changes everything. So the historicity of Jesus is kind of something we start with. Um, but let's go ahead and talk, if, if, we, if we start with the assumption that Jesus is a historical figure that we have, to, we have to deal with, we have to wrestle with, there's enough evidence there. Luke, go to the next slide. Then we talk about what did Jesus say about himself? What does is, what is Jesus claims then, if the gospels can be believed? Well, he's talking to the disciples, and they're actually saying, hey God, or not God, they're saying, hey Jesus, show us the Father. You talk about the Father all the time. Where is he? Can you show us what the father's like? We need to know. And Jesus is like, guys, his answer is, is essentially, if you've seen the father, if you've seen me, you've been walking with me, you've seen the father. And then he goes and he makes this statement. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except for me, through me. Be aware of what he's not saying. He's not saying, I know the truth. Or I have the truth. Or I can tell you about the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. You don't make a statement like that unless you know something that goes deeper and that is, if you will, supernatural about you. To say, I am the essence of truth is a bold claim that needs to be dealt with. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what truth is, I can show you. You look to me, right? So Jesus is on his own word saying, I, can, I, I am the truth, therefore to know the truth is to know me. So that's the first point. Go to the next slide, Luke. Um, the beginning of John is one of the most beautiful scriptures, and I recommend if you can. I've been working, I've been working this out over time, but in memorizing it. But John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And he paints this beautiful picture of Jesus and his preexistence from when he appeared on earth. One of the things he talks about here in verse four, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Skip down to verse nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John uses the metaphor of light. He's using it in the sense of truth. Things that the reality of this world and to discover the reality of the way things actually are is only seen when Jesus, the truth, shines his light on it. So Jesus, 
is declared by the gospels as the true light that illuminates all else. So great verses, Dave. What does that mean? Jesus is the truth, is the truth that brings the light of understanding. He's claiming that that is what he's saying should happen, or that's what he's saying he is. And that, and the gospels are telling us that Jesus is in fact, the only thing that illuminates this world to the degree that he does. Next slide, Luke. Therefore, regardless of my doubts and fears, can I trust Jesus to lead me to the truth? Even if I'm wondering if I can believe in him. Wow, that sounds weird, right? I mean, you either believe in him or you don't. But it's the idea of testing it. If Jesus, if the gospels are true, the historicity of Jesus is to be believed, and Jesus claims about himself, I am the truth, are to be believed, then he at least gets first shot. You're like, well, I'm going to believe science first. Okay, but science doesn't make these kind of claims. People sometimes make claims about it, but you can't make those claims about it. No one on earth has ever made these claims to this degree. Some have tried, but guess what? They didn't raise from the dead. So we got to start with Jesus. So I urge you, brother, I urge you those, I urge you those as you go through deconstruction or as you're in deconstruction right now, you have to start with, can I trust Jesus and will I trust Jesus to lead me into the truth? If you're going to reconstruct Start with Jesus. Now, you may be going, great, that's great. I don't know if I believe in Jesus, but I'm supposed to start with him. I don't know how to do that. Let's talk through some tips and tricks and some ideas and some paths we can follow in that, in that way. But none of, this, none of the rest of the stuff matters unless you're willing to wrestle with this and at least start here. As I've told folks, if, you, if, you're, if you're gonna try Jesus first and you're like, what if, what if, I, find, what if I find him wanting, which on its face, is a possibility. Well, you haven't lost anything, have you? But what if Jesus is that nugget hidden in the field that you're about to discover? And if you move past it too quick, because that one professor, that one guy on the internet said that one thing about him, and I don't know if he's true yet, you may be, you may be jumping out of, of the truth too quickly, and you may want to take some more time with it. So I want to urge you on that. Okay, um, what, is, what does reconstruction with Jesus look like? Let's move into some of that. Um, Luke, next slide, please. So I don't know if any of you recognize this photo. Uh, yes, Notre Dame in, what year was that, 2018? Caught fire, whatever happened, the roof burned down, and this is pictures taken immediately after it. I thought this was a good metaphor for, I'm in deconstruction, now it's time for reconstruction. Yikes. I got a mess on the floor. My roof has fallen in. What does re- How am I going to clean up this mess? How do I reconstruct? What I loved about this picture is with all the wreckage and the burnt stuff and the garbage that's fallen in. The, but what is in the center of the picture? The cross. Start with Jesus, right? What I love about this is this picture was used all over the place by all sorts of secular news and media. And stuff, but boom, right there is the center of the cross. And so out of the ashes of our deconstruction, we focus on the cross and we walk through some steps to reconstruct. So let's walk, let's, let, me, let, me, uh, let me share some of the, the, the things that I believe the Holy Spirit has said to me and things that I've found practically useful. Pray about them, take them um, as you walk that path forward, but you have to start with Jesus, with trusting Jesus as the truth. All right, um, next slide, Luke. Your reconstruction is not on your own schedule. 
It's going to go slower than you think. It's going to be cloudier than you think. And you're going to not like it. If you've been through Reconstruction, you're probably looking back going, that's yeah, very accurate. And I know I, in my own experiences of Reconstruction, I can agree with that. But it's not about your timing and your schedule and what you think should happen. It's about what Jesus is doing in your life. And therefore, aim and commit yourself to patience and trust. Patience first, knowing that if I've made the decision to trust Jesus as the source of truth, and he's not done working, then I have to let him run the schedule. It's not going to finish in a week, and it may take years. Um, But patience, patience with Jesus, and trust. Trust in him that he's always at work no matter how it feels. No matter when you, when you look around you and you say, oh my gosh, nothing makes sense and all the doubts are here and I just read that other thing about Jesus that, can't, that seems to confuse me and so forth. Trust. Aim for trust. Now, I said aim and not do it because there'll be times when you're doing a terrible job at patience and trust. And I guarantee, I know I go through this all the time where I'm like, I'm done. It's got to be finished this by the end of this week or Jesus, I don't know if I can trust this, this process anymore. But if your aim is for that, He'll bring you around. He's at work. And just like when Luke shared on Easter, if you were with us, the story of the guys on the road to Emmaus, where they spent an entire seven-mile walk chatting with Jesus without even realizing it, that's what your reconstruction looks like. You'll be arguing with Jesus. You'll be angry at Jesus. You'll be disappointed. He's not, he's not worried about it. He's just walking beside you, pointing out how you can grow and how you're actually discovering the truth. So aim for patience and trust. It's not on your schedule or timing. Also realize this. In Matthew 12, 20, um, Jesus is, is, there's an Old Testament um, prophecy about the Messiah that is applied to Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. Meaning Jesus' approach in your life is not one of brutality and harshness, but it's the most gentle approach that he, that he can use to bring you to the truth. Now, to us, like a child feels when their parent disciplines them, it feels brutal, right? Oh, this is so hard, Jesus. But he's not doing brutality. He's doing, he's doing it very gently. And his goal is not to try to put out your, uh, your, your flame of, of belief, but to gently protect it and grow it so that it becomes something that you want it to be. So part of that trust is realizing that his, his goal for you, his thoughts for you are of, of, of your best interest, but also in a way that's more gentle than you could possibly be with yourself. So that's trust in that. All right, next, uh, next slide, Luke. Focus solely on the four Gospels. So um, sometimes as we reconstruct, it might not be super helpful and some of you may laugh at this, to start with Leviticus. <laughs> or Song of Solomon. Or Revelation, to be honest with you. There are books in the Bible that, that have as their nature a lot more information about the centrality of what we believe. And there are books that are a little bit more peripheral, still contain a lot of that, and are helpful and are useful, and they're there for a reason. But there might be the wrong place to simplify and start again. Does that make sense? 
The best place, in my opinion, is to start in the Gospels because the Gospels, as they're named, are the story of Jesus. The Gospel is defined as the story of Jesus. It's not defined as an idea you believe about Jesus. It is Jesus' life and death, the story of Jesus that brings redemption to the world. And by focusing on that, you begin to open yourself up to seeing Jesus in a new light as he works in your heart and life. Next slide, Luke. What's interesting about um, this verse here in John 5, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, as he's wont to do, and he's basically challenging them because they're challenging him, say, where's your authority? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, you know what? You're, you're pouring over the Old Testament scriptures. When he says scriptures, there wasn't a New Testament, right? There wasn't the Gospels. It was the Old Testament. And he says, you're pouring over this because you think in these you're, you're going to find eternal life. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. His point in this, and I've taken a small excerpt out of it, is that the scriptures are supposed to point to Jesus. They don't point to themselves. They're not the source of life. They are the small w word that's pointing to the big W, Jesus, right? And so the irony here is that by taking a step back and, and committing yourself to focusing, say, on just reading the life and story of Jesus and his, what he had to say and, and focusing on the four gospels for a period of time, you open yourself up to the simplicity of letting Jesus speak to you about his life in ways that you didn't, you didn't see before and discovering new truth that way. Um, so I encourage focusing on the four gospels. Um, quick note, next week we start a sermon series on the book of Luke. So that's a great way to start focusing on a gospel if you want to join us and if you're new or if you're interested in joining us. But um, I think Luke, our pastor, is going to focus on his namesake gospel for the next few months, and I think it would be a great way to deep dive in that. So, All right, um, next slide. This is something that um, I've come to realize later in life. My journey... I was raised in a Christian home. When I got into my early 20s, I really said, I want to know if I believe something that is true. And I delve into the historicity of Jesus, the apologetics around the faith, studying the scriptures, et cetera, et cetera. And those were all very, very valuable, and they were part of my journey. At some point, though, I realized in my 40s that that wasn't enough. You might say, whoa, what? Hold on. So let me just back up. Paul is talking to the Galatians. And he's making his case, like, I'm an apostle. I have the authority to speak. Paul makes his claim that he's an apostle, not because he knows the Bible really well, which, by the way, Paul really did. He crushed it that way. Or that he'd been taught by some amazing teacher. Paul's claim to, to being an apostle, to knowing the gospel, was this. For I did not receive it from human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. His claim to being able to go around to the Gospels and tell them about Jesus, his claim to being included with the, with the apostles about, about sharing and being a part of the church and being writing, writing epistles that became a part of our New Testament was that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Like he met Jesus. And the only way we know about it is the story he tells us and the fact that he tells us this but it is no less true than the Gospels that we read. Does that make sense? Another one. Uh, next slide. In Matthew, Matthew 16, 
Jesus turns to the disciples at some point, and he says to them, who do you guys say that I am? Who do you think I am? Right? These are the 12 that have been following, trucking along. Imagine like they're walking along, and Jesus just stops. They all bump into each other. He turns around, and he says, who do you guys say that I am? Right? Kind of to shock him and see what their answer is. Of course, who's the spokesperson? Peter, big mouth Peter, jumps up and he says, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of of the living God, right? Jesus' answer to him is not like, great, I'm glad that I taught you all these things or that you realize this by looking through the Old Testament and rediscovering all this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, no, he's not saying Peter is the rock. He's saying the rock of your revelation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's basically telling Peter, you're saying this, not because you figured it out, but because my father gave it to you by a direct revelation. So, brace yourself. Our faith is not just built on what we can read. You need and should expect in God's timing, to have revelations in your life that you can't prove in a, in, in a book or prove in science, but are direct revelations from the living person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the scriptures that we read, the people that wrote those, their faith was based on a real revelation of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean you, you, like, you drop everything and you force God to reveal himself in that way. But what it means is an openness that maybe a part of what I'm going to reconstruct into is, is an experiential revelation of who Jesus is. Maybe I'm going to have a moment where God enters my life in a way that I cannot, I cannot dismiss and that I know that Jesus is real, not because I read about him in the Gospels, but because I talked to him like Paul did on the road to Damascus. Does that make sense? So be, be aware that that could be a part of what God's doing in your reconstruction and don't be afraid of it. Um, Next slide. To do this successfully, you need the church. So sometimes people go through deconstruction, and maybe they've gone through deconstruction because some of us in the church act like we're not sanctified yet. And it happens, and we do it, and we'll all do it, and God forgive us, help us to be better, right? The church is a hospital. It's not a, it's not a, a, a collection of perfect people, right? We're all growing and becoming together. But when that happens to people, they say, okay, that's it, I'm out. I'm going to go just be with me and Jesus in nature. That's how it's meant to be. But I would go back, that previous verse that was up there, Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. It is not an option to be a Christian in the woods by yourself with Jesus. You, you need the church, and the church needs you. And in order to go through reconstruction, you need the church. I know this, and if you've been hurt, this may sound terrible, and I know people that have been hurt in the past, um, but people that have gone successfully through that, and through that reconstruction, allowed Jesus to lead them, have found a richness in the church they didn't know was there before, because they didn't let their pain keep them from letting Jesus work in them. So you need the church in a couple different ways. There'll be times when you can't believe anymore. I just, I can't believe in Jesus. Something you experienced, the pain you've gone through, the doubts, they overwhelm you. Don't not go to church that Sunday morning. Come. The people that are sitting around you are at some level of their own faith walk. Some of them may be doubting. A lot of them will be 
passing through a reconstruction and feeling full of faith. Allow your brothers and sisters to carry that faith for you and just continue to show up. Secondly, going back to the thing I talked about before, you might be having an experience of Jesus, but you need to bounce that off your brothers and sisters in the faith because it could be just you having too much pizza the night before. Does that make sense? So the, the fact that experiencing a revelation of Jesus Christ is a true thing, but it's tempered or it's, it's supported and, and a good foundation is the church to help you walk through that. Does that make sense? Um, so th- that's why you need the church, and the church is, a part, is going to be a part of your reconstruction. Um, please do not let it go. Next slide, please. The last one I'll, I'll bring up too, and I found this extremely useful. Many of us, many of us here have grown up in, in different faith traditions. Many of us have grown up in what I would call Western evangelicalism or a Baptist, Southern Baptist church, whatever it might be. There is a, there is, an, there's multiple different faith traditions of which that can provide us tools to help us see Jesus in new ways that we've not been able to. Um, I believe strongly that the reason that there are these different faith traditions is that God cannot be nailed down to one of them. He is always blowing our minds, and we need, we need a kaleidoscope of views looking into Christ as, as we walk out our faith that help us see him in different ways. So let me point some examples. Um, we, need, you know, we, need the, the, we need things like the energy and the openness to, to the spiritual world that the Pentecostals bring. We need the focus on the cross that the Catholics can bring to the table. We need, um, we need the, the mysticism of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, none of these traditions are perfect, just like ours isn't, right? There's a lot of things you go, well, what about that thing? And I know those guys believe that thing. Sure. But that doesn't mean that everything they do is to be thrown out. So as you're going through Reconstruction, consider... Maybe I, there's some things I can integrate or I can think about or pray about or allow God to work in my life that could help the reconstruction process that I've not been, done, that I've not been able to do in the past or that I've, I've had a closed mind to in the past. A couple things I'll just, I'll just call out here. Contemplative, contemplative prayer is both a Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and some mainline Protestant things. What it means, sounds fancy, what it means is in your prayer time, practice sitting with Jesus. What that looks like is you stop making requests, you stop talking, and you center yourself on Jesus and you allow him to speak. It's a practice because people do it the first time and they're like, well, this is dumb, I keep thinking about my grocery list or my work. And it, it's a practice because it doesn't come easy. But people that do it and practice it, Christians that have done that, have encountered Christ in new and beautiful ways that they never thought possible before. But it's a discipline that led them into that. Another one is a celebration of the church calendar. In many, many other faith traditions, they center their year around the church calendar. What that means is Advent leads us to Christmas. Christmas leads us to the Epiphany. The Epiphany leads us to Lent. Lent leads us to Easter. And then there's a, a period of ordinary time where we focus on the, the, the overall story of Jesus and so forth that leads us back into Advent, that leads us back into Christmas. And, by, and I found actually the practice of Lent which I used to, when as a kid, it's like, what are the Catholics doing? Like the weirdos and Mardi Gras, it doesn't make any sense to me. The practice of Lent is to start your journey 40 days to Easter in a period of repentance and fasting to prepare for Easter. Every year I do it, 
Easter is richer to me. I guarantee it. It's hard. I don't enjoy Lent. It's not like, oh, fasting, you know, yay. But, but when I hit Easter, there seems to be a deeper revelation of who Jesus is in ways that I can't describe. So all that to say, um, these are ways that you can explore other faith traditions. The last one I'll say this too, and this is, this is to us, church, as Southern Baptists, as evangelicals. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and I'm telling you, during worship, if, if anyone else grew up in a Pentecostal church, it's, it's busy. I'll just say that, right? <laughs> There's some freedom there, and people are doing their thing. Um, but maybe that's, some of that's good. And maybe to get me to rethink and to reframe my own faith walk with Christ, I can integrate some of those new things. What if I raised my hands in worship? What if I moved a little bit? You know what I'm saying? Like, change, a little bit of change in the way that I'm practicing my faith based on traditions that have, tested, that have been tested over time um, can help us rediscover Jesus as he works in our heart. Next slide, Luke. So Luke talked about the story of John the Baptist. He gets thrown in jail because he yelled at Herod about being weird and gross. I won't go into details, but you know the story. And so Herod's like, that's it. You're going to prison. I'll probably just behead you later. So John is facing his own death. And he's wondering, Jesus, I thought we were going to do this Messiah thing. And like, if I like start challenging all these sins, you're supposed to like step in and do something. Like we're supposed to be, so are you really the Messiah? You know, he's wondering, Jesus, I'm just going to ask because I need to know before I get beheaded if I was wrong. And Jesus answers him. And I think if you did the connection group this morning, you read it. But Jesus answers him with kind of a, a review of his life. The blind are seeing the lame are walking, the dead are being raised, you know, and he's alluding to an Old Testament prophecy, but he doesn't end there. He ends with the following phrase, blessed are those who are not offended by me. This phrase has struck me in a new way as we, got, as we went through this series. So let, I've got up here a rephrasement, but I, I think Jesus is trying to get John's attention and say, hey dude, you're going through a reconstruction cycle or a sanctification cycle. So listen carefully when Jesus is saying, blessed are those who trust that I'm at work in the darkness of doubts and fears, and this is important, and refuse to let go when all feels lost. As you go through your reconstruction, is there enough of Jesus that you've seen in your past that you can say he's worth holding on to even though I don't know what's happening right now? even though all I see around me is darkness and doubts and fears, can I trust that Jesus is still at work, even if I'm in a prison facing my own beheading, to know that he is doing his work, and I don't understand it, but that's okay. I will, or at least I can trust that he knows more about what he should do than I do. So let me read that again. Blessed are those who trust that I'm at work in the darkness of doubts and fears, and refuse to let go when all is lost. That's the core of what we do when we reconstruct. It's a dark tunnel. And that's our, that's, our, that's our commitment that brings us through it and helps us hold on to Jesus. All right, next slide. Luke had this poem, or part of a poem, from T.S. Eliot on Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, it struck me so well that this actually encompasses the whole sanctification cycle. Or it encompasses the hope that we look to at the end of the sanctification cycle. T.S. Eliot says, 
we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. The deep, I think the deep truth of T.S. Eliot is at, and is what we're after in the sanctification cycle, is that when we get to the end, we look up, we see Jesus. And we say, oh, it's always been you. So let's finish the story of Mary. Um, close your eyes. I want you to, I want you to <laughs> let's go back to grade school. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to picture the garden. Mary's distraught. She's broken. Remember? The, the angels asked her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they took my master, and I don't know where they put him. She's broken. She's despairing. All that she hoped that Jesus was going to be is now lost to her. And in her loss and her pain, she's hoping that the last thing she could do was just anoint his body and attempt to provide him with some sort of honor due to a prophet that didn't actually end up being what she thought he would be. So she says, they took my master and I don't know where they put him. After she says this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, sir, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher, which means she recognized him. Stand with me and let's pray. Worship team, you guys want to come up? As we pray, you, I feel free to, to do some of those practices I talked about by holding your hands out, lifting your hands up, taking a position that allows you to, to reflect where your heart is this morning. Jesus, we, we stand before you in some point of our cycle of the sanctification, where we're either deconstructing or reconstructing. We confess that we feel the doubts and the fears and the loss, just like Mary did as she walked to the garden that morning. But we don't want to let go, and we do know that you are the truth and that our hope is in you. And we trust that as we walk in what seems like darkness and what seems like being alone, we know that you're walking beside us. And our trust is that at some point we'll look up and we'll see you there and realize that you've always been there working in our hearts and our lives, changing us, making us who you want us to be. What we can bring to the table, Jesus, is our commitment to you, our commitment to not let go regardless of what it feels like and to know that at the end of this dark tunnel, is the light of more of, the, uh, more of the reality of your love and your grace in our lives and that we see you more clearly. Work in our hearts and prepare us. Give us the strength and the energy to walk this out. And may your kingdom continue to come and your will continue to be done in our hearts and lives every day.